Uh, you've got your Bibles open, and uh, we are uh, continuing to work our way through First um, Kings. In fact, we're almost at the end of this little series on Elijah. If this is your first time here tonight, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, if you're uh, familiar with the Bible, you uh, might know that the story of Elijah begins back in uh, 1 Kings. We're actually in 2 Kings. And uh, it's been really, it's shaped out to be a two-part series. Um, on the one hand, it's been about Elijah, to whom conformity was not an option. He was a one-man fighting machine. He was a one-man who stood before the forces of evil and before the forces of idolatry and held them at bay. And, uh, and tandem to the life of Elijah was the uh, life of King Ahab. And King Ahab was a brutal man. Uh, there was nobody who provoked God to anger more than King Ahab. And it was primarily because he hated the word of God. And as a consequence, he hated God. And so we've been sort of <laughs> walking in tandem um, with, with these two individuals. And we're near the end of that series. We'll have one more message on Elijah and Elijah in the New Testament next week. And then we'll uh, go on to other things. I think the book of Revelation is, uh, I think, what's in this slate. Uh, and so that's kind of where we are. And behind all the scenes of what God has been doing through Elijah and in Ahab's life, we get a picture of how God works in human history. This is a book about history. It is human history that is recorded for us. It's the history of the kings of Israel. The account that we've been looking at takes place between about 850 B.C. and goes down, if you go to the end of Elisha's life, to about 775 B.C. So this is real history. But as you see in this real history, God is behind the scene directing it and guiding it and making it unfold according to his plan. Uh, one of the things that I want to do tonight, or there's two things I want to do tonight. One is to just give a quick overview of this portion of scripture that Christina read. And then to kind of do something that I don't normally do, but just back away and make a couple pastoral observations from the text uh, that I hope will be encouraging for us. Uh, the name of the sermon tonight was simply, Your Last Day. And then what? I've been thinking a lot about that because Elijah knew this was his last day. A whole bunch of other people did, as we'll find out in a few moments. But Elijah knew this was his last day. And then we know about Elijah that he then was taken up into a whirlwind into heaven. But do you know what happens at the end of your last day? I came to work early this morning and opened my email and just read a, <coughs> read a number of notes from a different people that I keep in contact with. And in those emails were the account of a 13-year-old girl who had suddenly passed away. Account of a 30-year-old man who had been out snowmobiling and had suddenly passed away. A 36-year-old woman who had been uh, going about her business and had died of a stroke. We never know when uh, our day will be our last day. But we need to think about it because what happens at the end of our last day? And so that's going to be woven through what we're talking about tonight. But first, just something of the, the, the biblical background so you can wrap your heads around it if you go back and read it on your own. First of all, this text is uh, a major transition in the life of Israel and in the story of, of the kings of Israel. We have this man who has been larger than life. And some of you have known that in your life. You've, you've had an individual who to you has been larger than life to you. They have supported you. They've sustained you. Maybe they've been a mentor to you. Maybe they've been a, a political figure. Maybe they've been a sports figure. Somebody that you've really just said, man, this world is a better place for that individual. And all of a sudden, they're replaced or they're taken off the scene. And you wonder, what in the world are you going to do now? Who are you going to look up to? Who's going to manage affairs? Who's going to take care of things? Who's maybe going to run the government or whatever it might be, depending on what your particular scenario is? 
What's going on in Israel is a massive change. And it's illustrated by the way that Elisha refers to Elijah when he's taken up into heaven. At the end of the text that Christina read, I think it's in verse 11 or verse 12, it says, as Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven, Elijah saw it, verse 12, and Elisha saw it and he cried out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And those same words were used by the king as he lamented the death of Elijah or Elisha a number of years later. And so we know that it's nothing to do with the horses and the uh, chariots that appeared as Elijah was taken up into the heaven because they didn't appear with Elisha. Rather, it's an epitaph or it's a way of referring to this individual. And so as Elijah is watching Elisha go up into heaven, he's at his wit's end and he's going, my father, my father. And he describes him as the chariots of Israel and the horses of Israel. In other words, he's a one-man fighting machine. That here's the one man that has stood in the gap. Here's the one man that has fought against the prophets of Baal. Here's the one man that has stood against King Ahab. Here's the one man that has held back the forces of evil. He has been a one-man fighting machine, so to speak. He is a one-man army. And now he's been taken out of sight. And he's wondering what in the world is going to happen. And loved ones, this is where we come back to our absolute confidence in Scripture. That God always knows the next move. That it never catches him off guard. That God is never sitting there thinking, oh no, Elijah's gone. God knew exactly what would happen. In fact, back in 1 Kings 19, we already knew that he had prepared for this day by having Elijah anoint Elisha. And he knew that Elijah would be the one who would take over after Elijah. And so never be despaired. As you look at the world around you and you look at uh, individuals taken off the scene, I, some people think that way when Billy Graham was taken off the scene. They said, what is the evangelical world ever going to do without a light like Billy Graham? Well, God has got other lights that are shining all over the world that will take over in their footsteps. And so this is a success in passage, and we need to think about it a little bit that way. Secondly, it's, uh, the geogra geography in the passage is really important. It's something that you can dive into a little bit farther. I just want to point it out to you. We start in Gilgal. It's about 10 miles north of, um, uh, uh, of Bethel. And so the day, the last day of Elijah, or Elijah, begins up in Gilgal somewhere, which is not far probably from a little bit below Mount Carmel in the Samaria area. And so he starts out in uh, Gilgal, and he makes his way to Bethel. And at Bethel, he converses with probably a group of the prophets that were at Bethel. And then he makes his way from Bethel, and he goes down to Jericho, and he talks with probably a few more prophets that, that are aware of what's going on. And then he goes to the Jordan River, and he crosses the Jordan River. And he's taken up into a whirlwind and goes to heaven. Well, what does Elisha do? He retraces those steps exactly. He takes his mantle, he whacks the river, it parts, it's on dry ground. He walks across the river, he goes into Jericho, he meets a bunch of people and they say, listen, our water is bad, our wives can't hold up pregnancies anymore, our animals are dying. And he fixes the water with the power of God and then he goes on to Bethel and a bunch of kids come out, like a whole herd of kids come out and they curse him and they, they yell at him and they, they make fun of him and he speaks a covenant curse on them and a, two she-bears come out of the woods and eat or kill 42 of them and then he goes on from there and he goes up to Mount Carmel. He retraces the steps of Elijah perfectly as he makes his way back home. Strangely enough, or not strange enough, coincidentally enough, those are the exact same first steps of the people of Israel as they come to the land of Canaan for the very first time under Joshua. 
And you can read that in Joshua chapter 1 to 8, how they make this exact same journey. And I think it's God's way of telling us that there's geography going on here, that, that he's wanting us to see that he is still conquering the land, that he is still prevailing over the enemies of his people. And so there's a picture of geography, and it helps if you think this through and work it out a little bit on your own. That's all I'll say about that. The third thing you might have noticed is there's an elephant in the room. You know the phrase, right, an elephant in the room? That means that there's a sense, there's a presence, there's an issue, there's a reality that's going on in the room. Everybody knows about it, but nobody wants to say a thing. Well, that's the elephant in the room in these 12 verses. The elephant in the room in these 12 verses is that this is Elijah's last day. Everyone knew it. Elijah knew it. Elisha knew it. The two groups of prophets knew it. There was whispering going on in the background, but nobody would actually come out and talk about it. Just be quiet. Don't talk about that. That's often what we do with elephants in the room. We don't want to address them. Well, that's the same with this elephant in the room that this was Elijah's last day. It's a mystery to me um, how, why Elijah says to Elisha at two different occasions, you stay here, I'm going to keep going. Not so much a mystery. I've, I think I've worked it out in my head, but Elijah has been, Elisha has been his servant for a number of years now. We don't know how long, but he's been his servant. He's been at his side every step of the way. And all of a sudden now on his last day, Elijah is trying to say to him, you stay here. I got to go to Bethel. You stay here. I got to go to Jericho. It looks like he's trying to brush off his servant. He's trying to push his servant out of the picture. And I think, well, why is all this going on? And I think to myself, well, because it's the one final opportunity that Elijah has to back out of his call. It's the one final opportunity that he has to say, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not up for this. I'm not really cut out for this. He's been walking with Elijah, or Elijah for who knows how long now. He's seen how difficult the road of a prophet is. He's seen how difficult it is to lead the people when they don't want to be led. He's seen how difficult it is to stand against kings who want nothing to do with God's word. He's understood the ridicule that comes. He's understood the pressure. He probably would have been beside Elijah when the two companies of 50 came to try and accost him and take him back to kill him. And fire came out of heaven and slew them all. And so this is his one final opportunity to say, yeah, you're right. This is bigger than me. And this is not something that I'm out, cut out for. But it's amazing to me and so encouraging that Elisha doesn't listen to Elijah. He sticks by him, step by step, to his final days. And I think it's also because he had in his heart this, this, this realization of how difficult the job was. And he needed to have the affirmation of God and of Elijah that he was his successor. And he had his question in his mind, and he's waiting for an opportunity to ask it. And his question was, I want a double portion of your power in your spirit. Can I have it? And finally, we know that he gets to that point, and he asks the question, and Elijah says to him, well, if you see me go up into the whirlwind, you will receive a double portion. And so we see that that happens to him, and he receives the double portion. That's another thing that you just need to think through as you think through this succession here. Just spend some time thinking about Elijah and Elisha in this transference of power. The final thing I want to make a comment on in text before we look at the two pastoral concerns are, are simply this. In Canaan, uh, in uh, ancient Canaan, Baal was known as the rider of the storm. Baal was known as the storm god. He was known as the one who controlled the weather, a warlike weather deity. And when dark clouds would form in the sky, people would look up and they'd say, ah, Baal is coming. When thunder would boom out of the clouds, they would say, ah, Baal is speaking. When lightning would be shooting out of the clouds, 
they would go, ah, Baal is causing trouble for somebody somewhere. That's how they looked at Baal. He was the storm god. He was the god that was over the, the clouds, over the rain, over the thunder, uh, over death, over life, over fertility. And if you've been following with us in this story, you've understood that every step along the way, we realize that God is actually the God over the storm clouds, over the rain, over death, over life. It's Elijah's God, the God that Elijah serves that actually sends the rain or holds the rain back, that sends fire from heaven. And so this whole um, uh, text has been this illustration that God trumps Baal every single time. And if you're able to go back to the text and I won't rate all the, the, uh, the references. There's numerous references, but I just want you to understand that what's going on here is this affirmation to the people of Israel and then to those in exile and now to us that our God is the one who rides on the storms. In fact, our God is called the rider of the cloud. That's a title that belongs to God, and it's found four times in the Old Testament. God is the run that rides in the heavens in his storm chariots at the head of heaven's armies, and that is repeatedly mentioned in the prophets of God in the Old Testament. Yahweh's chariot, or God's chariot, is called the whirlwind, or it's in the whirlwind. God and the armies of heaven fight from the clouds. You might remember that incredible encounter when the people of Israel had left Egypt, and they've left Egypt, and, and they're backed up against the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, and all of a sudden, they look out, and the army of Egypt is coming out them. And what does God do? He sets this big cloud between them and the people of Israel. And what does it say? It says all night long God fought against them. He fought against them out of the cloud. Baal doesn't own the clouds. God owns the clouds. And that's what is being illustrated in this particular passage here. And the symbolism and the imagery, the warrior God, the captain of the armies of the heaven, the rider of the clouds, he has come to get his prophet and to take him up into heaven. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know that Jesus was taken up into the clouds. And uh, as he was on that mountain with his disciples, the angel said to them, listen, in the same way that he's been taken up into the heavens, he is going to come back to you. And as I was thinking about that, my head went to Daniel chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. I'll just read one of those because I think it's happening. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. I mean, We've got this picture wrong sometimes. I don't know about you, but I've seen these artist renderings of the return of Jesus. And it, it doesn't do anything for me. It's this sort of white-robed, um, uh, white guy with this perfectly trimmed beard and locks flowing down behind his head and fluffy white clouds. And, and I think that's not what the text is saying. When you put it in the context of what's going on in this particular text, as Jesus comes down from heaven, what I, what I think is the right description is that there is this dark cloud that one has never seen before, this mighty dark cloud. And as the cloud is up there, you've got thunder just pounding around the earth as this cloud is forming. You've got lightning that's just bashing out of every side of this cloud. And all of a sudden, the clouds part, and our warrior king descends. He's not some mamby pamby but he's dressed in armor and he's got a shield and he's got might and power and beside him are the armies of heaven as he comes down to earth we're all thunderstruck yeah ACDC thunderstruck that's what I think we ought to have in our heads loved ones we, we, we forget that Jesus is a man and he's a warrior and he's a conqueror 
And he comes down to conquer this world and to reign and to rule over it. And so we find in this text that Elijah went up into heaven. Some pastoral observations from the text. I think a lot about death. I think partly it's because of what I've been called to do. Uh, It's part and parcel of what it means to be a pastor, to walk through uh, the valley of the shadow of death with many different people at all different times. It's also the way I'm built. I, I, it's not a morbid fascination with me at all. I just think it's a reality of life. You, you, you got to go through life with your head in the sand not to think about death, no matter what age we are. I think every time you read the scripture, we find that the scripture is full of death. And it should be so because the wages of sin is death. And so there should be descriptions of death all over the place in scripture. And so I think about death a lot. One of the things that I think about, one of the things that I think about when it comes to death is there is no such thing as an accident or a tragedy. We might describe the circumstances as accidental or we might describe the circumstances as tragic, but no death catches God off guard. The death of Elijah that day was not something that, that God kind of looked down and go, oops, I think I was supposed to get Elijah, Elijah today. And in fact, we have seen this woven through the text. We see it at the very beginning of the story that we started at with the story about the account of the rebuilding of the walls of Jericho. And God had said, whoever rebuilds the walls of Jericho, the city of Jericho, will do so as he lays the foundation at the death of his oldest son. And when he hangs the gates, he will do so at the death of his youngest son. God is the one that controls death. That curse was in place for hundreds of years until some idiot decided he could best God. And then we read through the text of the young boy that dies and who raises him up. But God's power raises the young boy up. We read of King Ahab that he died according to the word of God. We read about King Ahaziah. He died according to the word of God. We can go through all of scripture and we can realize that God is the sovereign over death. And for me, that's been just a great encouragement, help, as I've sat and stood beside the bedsides of those that have died. It says here that Elijah was taken up into heaven. Heaven is a real place. I think we need to think about that from time to time. I don't think it's, uh, I don't know how many of our thoughts went there this week, but heaven is a real place. The Bible always describes it as up. We go up into heaven. It describes hell as someplace down. We go down into hell. We descend into hell. It's sort of geographically orientated in our thinking, up to heaven, down to hell. And so heaven is somewhere that is up there. Heaven is where God's throne is. Heaven is where the people of God go when they die. Heaven is where those who die in Christ go to be for a period of time. The only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. There's so much I want to say about heaven tonight, but I really I have to restrict it. Otherwise, we will be here for an awful long time. But it says, Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And my head was going all over the place. I wanted to talk about, do we have bodies in heaven? Do we communicate in heaven? Do we interact in heaven? What is, what is heaven like? And there's so much in scripture, beloved, that talks about these things. We don't have to be in the dark. We don't have to go and read these silly books written by people who say, I went to heaven and I came back and this is what it's like. And I go, really? I don't find that anywhere in the scripture. The Bible has all the information we need to know about heaven. What I want to leave us with tonight on this one particular point is our escort into heaven. And I think it's hinted at here when it says that Elijah was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. He didn't go up to heaven by himself. As he went up into heaven, he met God in the whirlwind and he went home to heaven. 
And I think that's important because sometimes when we think about dying, and, and I've sat beside the, the bed of people, some of you with way more than I have, but, but we know a lot about the process of dying. And we can talk about the process, and we can explain the process, and we can prepare for the process. Even though it might be fearful, and even though we might not like what's coming, we can talk about the process. But there's nobody who has gone to the other side and come back and can tell us what it's like to make that final step from this life into the next life. And that creates a great deal amount of fear sometimes for people. And I think there's some great comfort in Scripture as we think about Elijah being taken up to heaven. He wasn't alone. God was with him. And as I thought about that, I went to Enoch. Enoch is the only other person in the Bible that I'm aware of that never died. He, 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 was, he was a man It's described in the Bible as saying, Enoch walked with God. And he was no more because God took him. And I, I've thought a lot about Enoch over the years. I've preached a few messages on him, and it just fascinates me that here's this man who he was characterized by walking with God, and it seemed like every single day he got up and he just went out and he walked with God. And it was like on this one particular day, he's out walking with God, and it's been an incredible day. Who knows what they talked about? Who knows where they went? Who knows what they did? But at the end of the day, finally, Enoch turns to God, and he says, you know, God, this has been one of the most amazing days of my life. They just keep getting better and better. But, you know, I got to go home tonight. I got to cook dinner. My kids are coming in from the field, and we got to have something to eat, and so I got to get going. And it's like God turns to Enoch, and he says, Enoch, you're not going home tonight. You're coming home with me. And they walk into heaven. I think it's amazing to understand that Enoch didn't go into heaven alone. He went in there escorted by God. He walked with God into heaven. And then I think one of the most fascinating verses that I think about a lot as well is in uh, Luke chapter 16 in the description of the rich man and uh, Lazarus. Um, and it's a fascinating story that illustrates so much about heaven and hell and this life and the next life and how this life affects the next life, next life and so on and so forth. But there's one particular verse, verse 22, which I, I think is so encouraging. And I have used this many times as I've been chatting with people as they're close to death. And it's simply this, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. There's a terrifying verse. I think it's in Isaiah 14, 9. I didn't, don't have it written down, but I think that's the one where it talks about the welcome of the kings that are in hell as people die and descend into Hades. But when you die, it seems that the Bible describes that we have an escort. It says we let go of the hands of our loved ones as soon as that touches over. A divine hand grabs hold of us and said, we're going home. And it's so encouraging. We don't have to be fearful as we cross that final veil, so to speak, as we take that step from this life to the next life. As those who are in Christ Jesus, we have a divine escort into heaven. This is one rabbit trail. And I think it's important when it comes from that text, at death our fate is sealed. There's no alternative. Once you die, your eternal fate is sealed. You don't have an option to, to say at that point, nah, I don't really like the direction I'm going here. I want to go that direction. The Bible says that it is appointed under man die, to die once and then the judgment. Everything changes at the moment of death. I was reading back in my notes from a number of years ago on a particular sermon. I don't know why I was reading that, but came across this little story about a business that was opening a new store. And a friend of the owner sent flowers for the occasion. 
And the flowers arrived at the new business site, and the business owner opened the flower, or, or took the flowers and opened the card, and inside the card it said, rest in peace. And he was pretty ticked about this. He thought, well, this is not the kind of mistake that any flower shop should make. And so he phoned the florist to complain, and he told the florist that there was this obvious mistake, and he was pretty ticked about this kind of thing. And the florist said to him, sir, I'm really sorry about the mistake, but rather than getting angry with me, you should be thinking about the family somewhere who's at a funeral. And they've just got some flowers and they've opened the card and it says, congratulations on your new location. That's <laughs> what happens when we die. We get a new location. And it's a permanent location. There's no change of address once we die. This world wants to tell us that everyone dies and goes to heaven. Uh, there's, there's few things more frustrating than being at a Christian uh, uh, a funeral of unbelievers and they all talk as though so-and-so's in heaven. And it's one of the hardest things to, to kind of work around that question or that issue in that particular setting. Because the Bible is absolutely clear, not everyone goes to heaven. And so it's something that we need to think about. But in the end of the day, as we're thinking about heaven, it, which is a real place, what I do want to encourage us with is just remind us also that when we do die, as we die in Christ, we have an escort. We have a divine escort into heaven. The second thing that I want to say is that heaven is not the end. Heaven is not the end of the road. The new heavens and the new earth are the end of the road. I want to encourage you to think beyond heaven tonight. I know this is sometimes hard to do, but I'm serious. I want us to think beyond heaven. We often say, well, heaven is my home. It's not our home. It's not a correct thing to say heaven is my home. We might be correct to say heaven is my temporary home, but we're wrong to say heaven is my eternal home. That's not what the Bible teaches, loved ones. It's like Elijah was taken up into heaven, and, and uh, I'm, I'm getting tired of saying this, but for you it's new, but for me it's old now. But it's like Bugs Bunny says, that's all, folks. And then we have Enoch, and he's taken up to heaven, and all of a sudden we have e Bugs Bunny in the background saying, that's all, folks. And we have the thief on the cross who dies, and he, he says to Jesus, will you remember me when you get to your home? And Jesus says, yeah, when you die, you will be with me in paradise. And as Bugs Bunny says, you know, that's all, folks. It's like, that is the end of everything. We have a song that we've sung. Some of you are familiar with it. Uh, maybe you aren't, but it says, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. It's like, that's our final destination. I can't wait to get to heaven, because when you get to heaven, it's going to be all full of rejoicing and happy. But if that's where the story ends, then our gospel is not complete. If that's where the Bible ends, then we've left out a, a, a whole bunch of the gospel and the story of the Bible. What I'm left with again, and sorry if you're an artist here tonight, but I'm left with an artist's conception of heaven. And, and uh, I know this is maybe a platonic uh, conception of heaven or a Greek conception of heaven, but it's one that fixes in my head. And I, I got this picture of us in heaven, and we're all in these, these fluffy white clouds, and we're floating around in heaven, and we play bumper clouds all day. And then when we're tired of that, we pull out our harps, and we start playing the harps. And I think, no, I don't want to go there. Do you want to go to a place like that? Does that appeal to people to say that's where I want to go and spend eternity? And I know I'm over-exaggerating the point just a little bit, but you and I were not made to spend eternity in heaven above. The Bible never tells us that. It's where we go when we die, but it's not where the Bible leaves us. It's a wonderful place, but heaven is an intermediate place. 
It's the place where we go when we die, but it's not the place that we will live forever. There's a better place that God has created for us or will create it for us where we will bow the knees of these bodies that are made perfect, these bodies that are made immortal. We will bow in these bodies before the King of kings and the Lord of lords on the new heaven and the new earth. To stop at heaven, to, to stop at heaven is to really focus on ourselves. It's selfish. It's self-centered. The Bible says that redemption is not just about you and I. Do you know that? Redemption is not just about us. It's an amazing thing to know that when we come to recognize our sins and be are desperate in our sin and know that there's nothing we can do about it, to call out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God gives us the righteousness of Christ and we are saved and we are transformed from darkness into light. It's a wonderful thing, but that's not the whole gospel story. It says in Romans, we sang it, that, that, that song. I love that song. Um, God of all creation. He's not just the God of you and I. We're important, but we're not the only thing in God's mind and in God's universe. And so it says, for the creation, the universe eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption. Do you know that? That this world, that how beautiful it is and how majestic as it is and how gorgeous it is and how awe-inspiring it is, it is captive, it is in bondage, it is held down because of sin. And it too is waiting to be released from its prison. This world and this cosmos is simply not gonna be some kind of um, garbage dump that floats around in the universe while we spend eternity up in heaven. That's not how the Bible describes it, loved ones. The Bible describes that God is going to recreate this world. And just as it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it also says that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and that is where we're going to live forever and ever. The Bible talks about the purification of this world. It needs to be purified. It needs to have every vestige of sin, every ounce of sin, every atom of sin got to be removed from it. And it will be removed as God purges this earth with fire. Just as he judged the earth uh, thousands of years ago in the flood, he didn't destroy the earth, he just judged the earth and removed sin from it. In a fuller way, when it happens the second time, God, by his heavenly fire, is going to purge and purify this earth. And Peter states it succinctly when he says, we're waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then we come to Revelation chapter 21, and we'll get there in a few months if we start in Revelation. And there John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And all of a sudden, my heart starts to pound and just beat within me as I read that stuff. And I say, yes, I knew there was more. I knew I didn't just have to stay up in heaven forever, as I said, playing bumper clouds and playing the harp. There's this new heaven and this new earth that I can live in for the rest of my life. And as I think about that, as I think about this, it's like coming home. That's what it is to come back to the new heaven and the new earth. It's like coming home. And that's why I say carefully, heaven is not our home. This earth is, and I think sometimes when we tell people about the gospel, they think about it, and there's something that resonates with them with, on this earth, and they think, I don't want to go to heaven. But if you tell the full gospel, maybe their heart just might be pricked a little bit. 
I was reading, uh, some fellow was indicating that the characteristics of great literature is that there's always a sense of coming back home. It's like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. It begins in the Shire. And from the Shire, all the heroes in the Shire, they take off and they go on these incredible journeys. They go to incredible lands and have incredible adventures and they meet elves and dwarves and dungeons and dragons. But at the end, where do they end up? They come back to the Shire. And at the Shire, they feel at home and they feel safe. And it always ends up with them coming back home. Another example of some of you who are poets might be familiar with T.S. Eliot's poem, East Coker. He begins with this line. He says, in my beginning is my end. I love that line. In my beginning is my end. And then for four or five incredible stanzas, he describes life, and you go back and forth, and you have this sense of covering an incredible amount of uh, distance. And then as you come to the end of the poem, the last line of the poem is, is, in my end is my beginning. It's this sense again of coming full circle. And this is, I, I think, what God wants us to understand as we live in this world, that coming full circle is not ending in heaven. Coming full circle is going all the way around and coming back to this new heavens and this new earth to work and live with God. And this resonates inside of me. As I get older, I just realize how little I know and how much I want to know. I want to study biology and chemistry and physics. I want to study architecture and painting and music. I want to understand all of these because mostly they show me about God and his incredible mind and wisdom and understanding. And as I understand it, as God brings us back to this new heaven and new earth, it will be all of these things as we again build culture together as God's people. But as we build it, it's in right relationship with God and in awe of God. And we just grow forever and ever in awe of his wisdom and understanding. That appeals to me. That draws me. That says, yes, God, of course that makes sense. You're bringing us back to how it all began in the Garden of Eden. Here's a rule of thumb for figuring out what will and will not make it through to the next life. I think whatever properly belongs to creation will be restored. I, I can't prove this from the Bible, but I think that God is, is going to build on what he's already built that is good and right and pure and holy and perfect. And so whatever properly belongs to creation will be restored, but whatever is the product of the fall will be removed. And so when we reach the new heavens and the new earth, we won't feel dislocated. We'll feel like we're in the place that we've always belonged. We'll be walking around thinking to ourselves, this is deja vu. Have you ever had a deja vu? You ever had that, that, that sense, I've been here before? I think that's what we'll have as we're walking around the new heaven and earth. All of a sudden, I've been here before. Have you ever been out walking in the woods? And you're walking down a path and you're just caught up in its beauty and its purity? <laughs> I, I read this term in one of the blogs I read, forest bathing. And it caught me off guard. And it's sort of the new thing, forest bathing. It's like we North Americans and we urbanites have finally developed or found something new and phenomenal. Well, really, it's not. It's like we've been living in concrete all of our lives. And when we finally get out and go for a two-hour walk in the forest, we feel refreshed and invigorated and alive. That's what forest bathing is, going for a walk in the forest. I thought, how silly is that? 
And yet somebody's going to make millions of dollars. I think they said it's the new yoga. <laughs> Silly to me. But have, have you ever been out walking in the woods? And you just get this sense. This is stunning. This is amazing. And you not kind of get this feeling, I want to live here forever. I don't want this to disappear. I had a few of those moments today just sitting out my deck looking at the flowers and the trees and feeling the sun. I thought, this is amazing. I think when we walk around in a new heaven and a new earth, we will have a sense of deja vu again and again and again and again. And this is what I've been made for. This is what I've been created for. This fellow named Chad Walsh, literary critic who came to faith in Christ through the work of C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this just amazing paragraph. I believe man once lived in utopia, but does no longer, and that he's always trying to return. The name of our first utopia was Eden. It is part of our heritage. We want to go back. I love this. We are haunted by memories of the original garden. We are a displaced person, but our homeland burns and glows in our heart. Is that not how you feel? Is there not some burn inside of you as you look at this and say, God, this is such an amazing place. Why are we leaving here? I think we need to remember that the fullness of gospel is, ends with the full restoration of this universe that God has made. The gospel doesn't just end with when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. The gospel ends when we are back on this earth and in this heavens, but a new earth and a new heavens. And truly, I think there's that song, heaven is a place on earth. Heaven is a place on earth. And so as T.S. Eliot wrote, in my end is my beginning, and we've come full circle. So where will you end up at the end of your last day? Have you ever thought about that? Where will you end up at the end of your last day? There's only two options. One is to descend into hell and to open your eyes too late and realize that that is your eternal destiny. Or it's to be transported by a divine entourage carried into heaven to await your descent to a new heaven and a new earth. Where will you end up at the end of your last day? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word tonight and uh, for its reminder and its encouragement to us. As I've been thinking all day, when we talk about subjects like this, it's easy to get onto speculation and things that maybe are in our own head and not really borne out by Scripture. And so I pray, Father, for any of that stuff that has come out of my mouth that's been dribble or been error or incorrect, will you just blow it away, blow it out of our hearts and our minds and let us not give it a second thought. Father, if there's truth in it, would you feed it, water it, help it to grow? and give us great encouragement for the days ahead. Help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who tell the whole gospel story when given an opportunity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.